Hey, can I invite you to do something while you're just kind of quieting your heart back down? Um, can I ask you to close your eyes for just a minute? And um, in this moment, just ask God to reveal to you the, the name of an individual who's on your heart right now. Somebody who needs a relationship with God that you know. And in response to that name that God just laid on your heart, would you just lift it up before him right now and ask that his mercy would be revealed to that person and that they would discover this wonderful name of Jesus. Just, just offer it up to God right now. Father, I know you hear the heart of your people. Listen as they cry out these names. Hear them, Father. Hear these ones who need to be in relationship with you. We offer it to you, believing that you want them and that you're willing to redeem. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4. And uh, if you're streaming live right now, you can turn to your Bible as well. Really glad that you're here this morning. Glad that you're in the auditorium or that you're watching online. We're picking up where we left off last week in Romans 4. We're going to be in verse 18 this morning and going through verse 22. I'm going to ask you at the end of the service to do something similar to what I just asked you to pray about. And that is that if you think that what you're about to study and hear is applicable to that person's life, I'm going to encourage you to text that person, contact that person, email that person, and tell them that they can watch a video of this service after the service later this afternoon so that maybe they would hear this exact same thing and God would move in their heart. So let's go into Romans chapter 4. And what I'd like to do is just revisit where we left off at last week. We ended last week with John 3.16. You might remember this. Jesus was in a conversation with a person who came to see him who snuck into the house by night. His name is Nicodemus, and he was a teacher of Israel. And he came and asked Jesus, what does someone have to do to be saved? And Jesus entered into the dialogue with him about what a person has to do. And the, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, came back with a question, how is that possible? And Jesus' response was verse 16. God so loves the world so much, Nicodemus, that He sent His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. You, you might remember where we left off at. And now, as a response to that, some individuals had conversations with me over the course of this last week. Some said, what does it mean to believe? What does biblical belief look like? And in other conversations that came up, some said, well, I've got friends who say they believe, but they don't live like they believe. How can it be possible that they're believers like I'm a believer if they're not living like a believer? Well, in response to that second question, the short answer is this. If you've got somebody in your life who says they're a believer, but they don't live like a believer, that issue is really between them and God, right? It's totally legitimate to be concerned for that person. And, and maybe God is causing you to need to speak into the life of that person. But maybe God is just moving you to pray for that person more. That may be the situation with number two. But number one, the number one question really relates to where we're going this morning. What is belief? What does that look like? It's really important to define what is biblical belief. How God defines 
believing is found in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, where we're going to go this morning. It's sharply delineated for us in the actions of a person by the name of Abraham. So I'm going to pray with you right now that God would teach us, that He would speak to us through His Word. But when we come out of prayer, just know this, it's going to be feeling like a hard shift because I'm going to pick up on something that's kind of a revisit of where we've been in Romans to get us to this point of belief. So let's pray together that God would be our teacher. Father, we come before You asking that You would teach us through the power of the Holy Spirit. As believers in Jesus Christ, we're confident that the Spirit is present here. And you've told us that your spirit is our teacher and our guide to help us to understand you. So we ask that. Where we fall short, where our learning is limited, where our brains just can't connect all the dots, God, would you make it clear to us? Would you make it plain? Help us to put the pieces together. And Father, for those who are not yet in relationship with you, I ask that you'd be especially close to them to draw them into relationship with you. Let them see what it would mean to join you in relationship. Father, we pray for this in the mighty name, the matchless name of Jesus Christ our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, if you go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, you find on the final day of creation, God making a pronouncement. The sixth day, He said something distinctly different from all the other days. On day one, he called light into existence where there had been no light. And at the end of day one, it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and God saw and God said that it was good. Day two, it was good. Day three, it was good. Day four, it's good. Day five, it's good. Day six, God creates mankind. And he says to mankind, go out and rule over the earth and subdue it. Everything that I have created, I have put under your feet. And God looked at everything that he created On day six, it says, it is very good. Not just good, very good from the mouth of God. Perfection. God says it's absolutely perfect. So, picture Adam and Eve. Perfect skin, perfect teeth, perfect eyesight, perfect muscle structure, perfect hair. Wouldn't you like to be Adam and Eve? (laughs) Everything perfect, perfect relationship. Perfect morality, perfect mental capabilities, nothing diminished. As God declared it, it's very good. Perfection by God's standards. Fast forward from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 3, and you find the fall of man. After the fall of man, mankind desperately wants to get back to the place of perfection, but it's not possible. Mankind cannot be restored to that place through human achievement. Mankind cannot even get back into the garden that God sent them out of. God cast them from His presence. We're told that they wanted back in so desperately that God had to put a guard at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. You can look at it yourself in Genesis chapter 3. He placed a flaming sword at the entrance so that mankind would not re-enter. They wanted it. They wanted perfection desperately because they knew what it was to have it. But it's not possible for them to be restored. Not possible through a system of works. Not possible through man's achievement that they could get back, that they could regain their position of perfection. Perfect relationship with God to the degree that they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And they lost it. It's gone. And they want it back. No human system 
could put them back. If a human system could be devised or a set of law or works by which they could be restored to life, God would have given it. Galatians chapter 3 will back me up on that. Perhaps you haven't seen that before, but look with me on the screen. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. To this day, internally, everyone you live around, your social environment, you yourself know that something is broken. All you have to do is pick up the news headlines first thing in the morning when you get up. We know something is broken on planet Earth, and we realize restoration is completely necessary. But most people don't know what to do about it. What the Bible reveals is that sin and what came with it, death and decay, is so horrible that it demands, it requires something greater to deal with it, something greater than mankind. So here's a summation of what we've looked at in 24 weeks now in Romans. Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. Through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, God moved upon this person, Paul, to describe in the clearest language possible, man is fallen, and every one of us have a sin issue to deal with, and that there is no system of works, there is no system of good behavior that can restore us back to the place of perfection. It requires the intervention of God Himself. So therefore, it requires that you and I, as humanity, have confidence in the one who can restore us. That we believe that he has the capacity to put us back in a place of perfection. Now the dirty little secret is this. Many people doubt. Many people doubt that God cares enough to do that. Or they doubt that God has the capacity to do that. And according to some... If you are a believer, your belief is irrational. It makes no sense whatsoever. How can you believe that? According to some, your belief is completely unreasonable. I want you to see this phrase, and it's going to pop up several times this morning, and I just want you to chew on it and process it. It comes right out of my notes. Belief is irrational only within a narrow worldview that restricts or rejects God's right to intervene. I had a person approach me after the nine o'clock service who said, I, I don't like that word right. And I said, oh, why? Why don't you like the word right? He says, it sounds like we're giving God permission. Well, if you're tripping over the word right, maybe you want to put the word authority in there. Over God's authority to intervene. I, I don't know where you're at with that, but th this is a truth. Belief is only irrational when you put God in a box, when you restrict him and take away what you believe is his authority or his right to intervene. As we saw last week, God made a promise to all of mankind. It's not restricted to one particular nation. He said, this is available for the entire globe. I make a commitment, I make a promise that to those who believe, to those who will put their faith in me, I will restore you to that place of perfection. That concept, that believing is God's commitment that if we believe in that promise, he will be faithful to fulfill it. Now, I want to catch up with you in Romans 4 by going to verse 17 where we left off last week. Pick it up midstream with me. This is what we're told by Paul. 
God gives life to the dead. This is what 17 says. God gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So Paul's argument is this. Who is it that declares this promise? Who is the one that says He can take your sin and remove it from you? Paul's argument is it's the one who gives life to the dead. It's the one who calls into being that which does not exist. The Creator God. The one who said on day one, let there be light. And on day two, He began again the creation process. And day three, and day four, and day five, and day six. That one can guarantee the promise because of the power of His spoken word. When He speaks, things happen. Go with me now to verse 18. This is new for us this morning. We didn't pick up 18 last week. Verse 18 says this, In hope against hope, he believed. Now the he that he's talking about there is Abraham. He's picking up on previous thoughts in verses 15 and 16 where we were talking about Abraham. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. What you're seeing in verse 18 is the quality of biblical faith. The quality of it. We're talking about what is biblical faith, the way that God defines it. You're looking at the quality of it. Abraham hoped against hope. Now, if you're not familiar with Abraham, let me catch you up on him real quickly. Maybe you're new to the Bible. Abraham's name originally was Abram. And he lived in what's called the Ur of the Chaldees, in the southern part of Persia, what we think of as Iran today. And God called him from there and said, Abram, You go to a new land, a land that I'm going to give you, one that is not inhabited by you yet, but it can be in the future. So Abram moved his entire family to the Middle East, what we call today Israel. It was the beginning of the Jewish nation. God called them, and then he said, if you walk north and you walk south and you walk east and west, as far as you cast your eyes, Abram, I'm going to give that to you, and you are going to be made into a great nation. Now, Abram's name means the father of many. So where God locates Abram is in the heart of the highways that were transfixed between Egypt and the northern regions of what would become the Roman Empire. So he's sitting at the crossroads of the world. Caravans traveled back and forth to the east and to the west, to the north and the south. They had to come past Abram. Genesis chapter 12 says that Abram was very, very wealthy. He owned many wells, and he owned lots of cattle, and he had many servants. So God blessed him greatly. And when people went on trips or when caravans made a journey and they're trading from the north to the south and the south to the north and the east wanted to come to the west, they had to go past Abram's wells because when you're traveling with camels in a caravan, you got to stop and refuel. Just like we travel on the highway today and we need gas stations to pull our car off into and we go into the convenience stores and we refuel for the trip, people did that with Abram. So by the hundreds and by the thousands, people stopped at Abram's wells. And invariably, they'd come to his tent in the evening and knock on the door and say, who are you and how long have you been here? And how did you get to be so wealthy? And how are you established here? And Then invariably they'd come to this. And what is your name? My name is Abram. Oh, father of many. Congratulations. How many children do you have? Uh, Zero. (laughs) Double eggshells. Nothing. Now, I'm sure some people left snickering like, what kind of a name is that? You got no children, but you're told you're the father of many? 
Now, if that's not bad enough, in Genesis 15, God shows up and reminds Abram of who he is and what he's going to do through him. And in Genesis 15, God says, your name will no longer be Abram. I'm changing your name to Abraham, the father of a great nation. And we're told as a result, he takes Abraham outside and shows him the stars of the sky. I'll I'll get to that in just a minute to see the promise that God made to him. So what we're looking at in verse 18 is we're told, in hope against hope, Abraham believed in God. Now there's human hope and there's biblical hope. Let's define the difference. Human hope fails Human hope in Abraham's case had failed. He's an old man by this point. He's lived a long time and he still has no children. And physically, he's hit the point where he cannot have a child. His wife is very old. He is very old. And human hope had failed. And then there's biblical hope. Biblical hope is God-given hope, which does not fail. So let me delineate the difference for you. I had a conversation with Matt Hall. Um, he's the guy who plays guitar up here occasionally, right? And we were talking about Spartan basketball. This was yesterday, and we were talking about whether or not the Spartans are going to make it to the tournament. And we were talking about the fact that the, I guess there's a big basketball game today where the Spartans are going to play the Wolverines, right? And some of you are hoping to get out of here on time to watch that. So we had this conversation. I said, Matt, do you, do you think the Spartans are going to make it into the final rounds, into the tournament this year? His response, he might deny this if you ask him later, but he said, I hope so. Right Now, I said, Matt, is that biblical hope or is that earthly hope? Okay, here's the difference for you. Earthly hope says this, I really want it to happen. I wish it would happen. I'm hoping that it would happen. Okay, that's not biblical hope. Here's how the Bible defines the word hope. Hope is looking forward to something that has not yet happened. Something that God guaranteed it has not yet occurred. So there is certainty in biblical hope. We're told Abraham is hoping against hope. In other words, Abraham went beyond human capacity. He went into the outer realm, the place where you have to put all your trust in God, beyond the, the, the lines of human ability, because Abraham's hope rests on God's integrity and on God's capacity. So let's go back to this thought. God's got Abraham outside. He stands with him outside his tent, and he says, Abraham, I want you to look at the stars in the sky and count them if you can. Look at the passage with me on the screen, and you'll see it. Genesis 15, 5. He took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. In this moment, Abraham had a choice. Many of you have faced the exact same choice. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you face this for the first time. When you heard who Jesus is, you had to make a decision. Do I take God at His word or do I turn and walk away? Do I believe that God is true to His word or do I think, oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, not interested. I mean, after all, look at me in Abraham's case. I'm an old man, God. Abraham had a decision. Do I believe God or do I not believe God? Genesis 15.5 says God said you're going to have a lot of descendants. Abraham has to make a choice. What am I going to do with that? God's intervention in moments like that are absolutely irrational. 
if you restrict God and put him in a human perspective. God's intervention is highly irrational from a human perspective. It flies in the face of what seems to be reasonably expected. Belief is only unreasonable, though, if you restrict God. Look at what we said earlier. Look at, the, look at this quote on the screen. Belief is irrational only with a narrow worldview that rejects God's right or authority, if you will, to intervene. God's intervention, however, is highly rational from a biblical perspective. The God of the Bible, according to his nature and character, not only allows his intervention, it expects him to intervene. So to the person, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to the person who puts no restrictions on God's ability, to his capacity, God can do all things. Amen, New Hope? He's not limited by anything. God is not limited. He is able. He is not limited by man's puny thinking. You know who said that? God. I want you to see with me. Look with me. God saying this. Genesis 15, I'm sorry, Matthew 19, 26. This is Jesus speaking. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Do you remember the setting in Matthew 19? People are asking Jesus how to be saved. And they're flabbergasted by his answer. His response to them is, God can do anything. He is not limited by man's restrictions. See, biblical hope is way different than secular optimism because biblical hope is grounded in what God can do. So Abraham's hope is not in the power of the human spirit to rise above the circumstances. That's, that's, that's secular optimism. God says, you put your confidence in me. He has a core conviction that God is absolutely faithful. So we're told he believed when from the world's point of view, there's nothing to believe in. There's no reason. Look with me at verse 19. It gets real explicit about what he cannot believe in. Verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb... So Abraham's 99, Sarah's about 89. So we've got two individuals who are pretty old, and Scripture's talking here specifically about procreation, the ability of a man and woman to come together and make a baby. Procreation in the physical sense. God says Abraham and Sarah physically could not do it. They're as good as dead. And that's when human hope is gone. When that happens, God-given hope comes into effect when God says when you're weak when you're broken when you're at the bottom that's when my perfection is made most visible look with me on the screen I want to remind you of what Paul wrote in Corinthians he talked about his own personal weakness when God was speaking to Paul about his weakness he said to Paul my grace is sufficient for you Paul for power is perfected in weakness now let's just get common sense for a moment from common sense viewpoint, from a physiological, scientific standpoint, there is no possibility that Sarah can bear a child. It's irrational. It makes no sense. So Abraham contemplates his own body. Now, I'm, I'm thinking about this earlier this week, and I'm 
beginning to smile, and then I began to laugh as I thought of this guy, 99 years old, standing in front of a mirror, okay? <laughs> I've never seen a 99-year-old naked man, and I never want to, okay? <laughs> but I'm thinking it's not pretty, okay? So we've got this guy contemplating his own body, and he's looking at what he has to work with, okay? All right? So from the Hebrew language point of view, it gets really specific. Actually, you would consider a little graphic. It says, he's utterly worn out. In other words, his get up and go has got up and gone. <laughs> there's nothing for him to be able to work with, so Scripture's very specific. It says there's a sense of sexual impotency. He's aware. He's aware as he contemplates his own body. Catch this. The reality of the physical circumstances do not cause Abraham's faith to weaken because biblical faith goes beyond human capacity. Now, we saw in the beginning of this that the quality of biblical faith is found in Abraham when it says he's got hope against hope. He's got biblical hope against human hope. And now we see a quality of biblical faith here when we're told without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated the circumstances. So, so catch the significance of this for you this morning. Biblical faith is not afraid of reality. I want you to see that on the screen so it just really burns in you. Biblical faith is not afraid of reality. It's authentic. It's legitimate. It recognizes what is dead is dead. And it requires the God of life to bring it back. What's dead is dead. It's not afraid of reality. It requires God to speak into it. So number one, it acknowledges the reality of the circumstances. Yep, I see what's before me. I know what I'm dealing with. And faith does not close its eyes to reality, but believes in spite of what it sees. Because where God is present, you've already said amen to this, but say it again. Where God is present, nothing is impossible. God can do it. God can bring life where there is no life. So it acknowledges the reality of the circumstances, but here's the second thing it does. It acknowledges the God who is not bound by circumstances. Church, I'm here to tell you, your world, our world, desperately needs people who believe that God is able. They need it. They desperately need to be reminded God is able. So from a human vantage point, there's absolutely no hope. But Abraham's faith doesn't depend on these human factors. So check me on this. You, you can check the book of Genesis later and, and see if I'm right on this. But as far as we know, as far as we study, Abraham's never seen a miracle. Before God intervened, he had no idea of these things that God could do. As far as we know, Abraham's never seen God raise someone from the dead but he even believed to that degree that God can raise someone from the dead. Do you believe that this morning? Look, look with me at Scripture. God says this in Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. In that situation, he's talking about his own son Isaac. But he had that belief that God is capable. So check this. Physiological evidence, scientific evidence, those facts do not diminish biblical faith because natural problems are not a problem for a supernatural God. He's in control of everything. 
So verse 20 says that as a result of this belief, there's an action. Look with me at the action. Faith results in action. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, what's God's promise? That He's greater. That He's greater than all our problems. Yet with respect to the promise of God, He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So Abraham has faced the reality. I'm beyond childbearing age. I can't do anything about it. He knows exactly his limitations, but he also knows it's not dependent upon him. So we're told Abraham did not waver. According to verse 20, he's not vacillating between doubt and faith, not going back and forth. To the contrary, we see that his faith is actually strengthened. He grew strong in faith. My experience in my own personal walk with Christ is this. When things are going really, really good, it's really, really easy for me to believe in a powerful God. Can you identify with that? Okay, it's very easy when things are going good. It's when things are going hard that you begin wondering, does God really have my best interest at heart? Does he really care? Does he even know what I'm going through? Is he aware? That's when things really begin testing our faith, when things are really going hard. I just want to be really clear with you this morning. Struggling faith is not doubt. Now hear that because I know some of you are struggling. Struggling faith is not doubt. Just as temptation to sin is not sin. If you're tempted to sin, you're not sinning. You're just being tempted. If you're struggling with something spiritually, you're not doubting unless you go to the place where you refute God's ability. So let me flesh that out for you. If you go back later today and read Genesis chapter 11 through Genesis 16, you're going to find a real flesh and bone man. A person who lived while caravans are going by and people are stopping and knocking on his door and asking him how many children he has. And he has to keep saying zero, zero, zero. Day after day after day after day. He's told at age 75 he's going to have a child. It's age 99 and he still has not had a child. You think you would begin to despair over that? You think you'd get tired of people coming to your door and knocking and saying, what's your name? You're going to despair after day after day after day of that. So you're going to find in Genesis 11 through 16 a real flesh and bone man who's wrestling with God trying to figure out, God, I know you can do this. I believe you're going to do this. How are you going to do this? And Abraham tries to come up with some of his own solutions. He tries to help God, in other words. But he never doubts God. He believes it's true. He just can't figure out how it's going to happen. So hear this. Sincerely wrestling with spiritual problems is not a lack of faith. Because as believers, we don't check our brain at the door. We wrestle through these things. Godly faith refuses to doubt. Even when a clear path is not seen, we believe that God is able. So in the midst of our wrestling, there's something that happens. There's a testing of our faith. And we're told there's an action as a result of the testing. It actually produces something. Look with me on the screen at James 1.3. James said this, the testing of your faith, it produces an action. He said it produces endurance. So hear this, you're not going to see this on the screen. Godly faith 
Godly believing is not full understanding because you don't have all the answers. Godly faith is not full understanding. It's full trust that God is capable, that God is able, that God is willing to do what He said He will do. Amen? That's your God. So that's why Hebrews 11 says this. Godly faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. God's going to do it. I can't see it yet, but I know it's going to happen. So believing faith results in action. We're told this guy grew strong in his faith to the degree, if you read the rest of verse 20, it says he breaks out in praise. He begins singing glory to God. I don't know if he's singing jailbreaker like you did this morning, but I think he's singing. He's praising God. Now, if you've privately wondered, how do I give glory to God? I want to do that in my life. How do I do that? The way you give glory to God is by ascribing truth, ascribing glory to his name. Michael leads you through that in worship every week. We ascribe things that are true of God. What a beautiful name it is. What a glorious name. You are the chain breaker. You're giving glory to God when you do that. You do that privately when you sit down to a meal with your family. Maybe you sit down by yourself in a restaurant and you just bow your head and you praise God. Thank you for your provision in my life. What are you doing? You're giving glory to God. You're just like Abraham. That's exactly what he's doing. God, you're the provider. So let's watch how this ends up in verse 21. We're told this, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Don't you love that verse? Isn't that great? He's fully assured that what God promised, he is able. So Abraham is fully persuaded that God has the power. He's not questioning that. He's not asking, can God do this? That's a moot point. You don't have to challenge whether or not God could do it. That's not even a valid question. Here's the question that drives most people. Will God do it? Will he intervene? That's the question that drives most people. Abraham is fully persuaded. God will do it. So we're told in verse 21, he's fully assured. He's got complete confidence that God is faithful to his word. And if you're looking for something that embodies this entire passage, that statement does. It embodies what it means to believe. And I hear it screaming across millennia. Not just from Paul writing it in Romans, but from Abraham's life in Genesis saying, are you paying attention? Your confidence is in the God who can speak the world into existence. Your hope is in that one. Why do you waver? He's made promises to you that he will rescue you. So Abraham understands he's not just stepping off a ledge here. He's not just stepping blindly into the darkness. I hope this happens. He's absolutely persuaded that the promise is matched by the power, and the power is matched by the promise. Dr. Moo, who's a professor at um, uh, Wheaton University down in Chicago, I wanted you to see his quote. He's not an old dead theologian. He's well alive, and, and I needed you to see the way that he summed it up. He said it this way, Abraham's faith was not a leap into the dark, but a leap from the evidence of his senses, meaning his feelings, right? into the security of God's word and promise. He's nailed it. That's right on the money. I've seen a lot of definitions of faith over the years. Maybe you have as well. I want you to see the one that I think is the best definition that I've come across. It's defined this way. Faith is total surrender to the ability and the willingness of God to carry out his promises. That's a good definition. 
Not only his ability, but his willingness to do it. Let's wrap it up with this last verse. Verse 22, we're told this. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. And there's the heart of the entire passage. In response to believing, you consider yourself a believer this morning? This is how God responds to believers. In response to believing, God transfers righteousness. Because of belief, God sees Abraham as righteous. Is that how he sees you this morning? Are you a believer? If you're a believer, God sees you as righteous. That's what we're after. Because that's what Adam needed. That's what Noah needed. That's what Abraham needed. That's what Daniel needed. That's what Moses needed. That's what Esther needed. That's what Deborah needed. That's what Aquila and Priscilla and Mary, everybody in the Bible needed exactly what you've just learned this morning. They need righteousness. We need the righteousness of God, the righteousness that only He can give if we ever hope to be restored to that place of perfection. Perfect mind, perfect mental capacity, perfect relationship with the God of heaven because He gives righteousness. Your believing this morning is viewed exactly this way because we exercise the same faith. So to tie this together and put a little bow on it, you go to the book of John, you find John making his closing statement about why the things in the Bible are written down the way they're written down. Specifically, he summarizes it this way. He says in John 20, verse 31, These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that what church? And that believing, not working, not struggling and wrestling, trying to figure out how to do it on your own. Believing you may have life in His name. This is not that hard. God makes a commitment. You believe, I will restore you. I will forgive your sins and separate you from your sins from you as far as the east is from the west and remember them no more. Is not our God amazing? Our God is amazing. Let's pray. We're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to seal this so we don't forget this, all right? We've got a big week ahead of us. Father, we don't know what the week holds, but you do. And I know that we need to be reminded of these things or you wouldn't have moved us to study them. So God, I ask that you would remind us today, this afternoon, wherever we go this evening, the things that we do tomorrow and throughout the week ahead, God, remind us of who we are in you. We, we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we don't need to fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Father, for those who are not yet there in that relationship position with you, I, I ask for your mercy upon them. Be near to those individuals who have not yet discovered what it means to have a relationship with you and that it's not that hard. Show them, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit that they too can have faith in Jesus Christ and by believing they can have life in his name. Thank you for the truth of these words. Seal them in our heart. God, we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Don't forget what I asked you a minute ago. If God laid somebody's name on your heart, contact that person and let them know that they can watch this later today. Okay, have a great week.